This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel, the official travel agency of Communicore Weekly. With over 15 years of experience, Teresa and her team will help you be, book the best Disney vacation you've ever had. Whether you want to go to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, a Disney cruise, an Adventures by Disney trip, <laughs> and everything in between, Fairy Godmother Travel is the only travel agency we trust to help us make Disney magic. Contact them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com today. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. You know, I was going to do a bit where that would have tied into the history segment where like I lost my voice, but then I realized you wouldn't understand because I wouldn't be talking to you. Wow. Yeah, that's just something you can't do on a podcast. No, no. And, and I can't do without, you know, pre-planning it. I can't just think of it as you're saying, hello, and welcome to Kunika Weekly. I need to, like, tell you beforehand so you can... So I could be like, Jeff? Yeah. Oh, Jeff, what's wrong? Did oh, Jeff. Did a sea witch steal your voice? Yeah, or because something? that's the only logical explanation. Or, or did, did I lose the internet again? <laughs> again. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> what happened Well, that here? was a failed bit, as per usual. But we pulled it out of the fire? No, we didn't. Okay, I was always hoping. Maybe we'll win an award this year, Best Pulling It Out of the Fire Award. Okay, Multiple I'm down times. for that. Multiple times. Multiple. All right, let's just do the history. All right. It's time for Disney History! When most Disney fans hear the title The Little Mermaid, they usually think of long red hair you know, flowing through the waves, or perhaps a beautiful love story that even the vilest villain could not corrupt. They may even find themselves you know, bopping to a calypso beat and singing like a certain Caribbean crab. And in the time leading up to the film, however, the writers and artists at Disney's animation studios were feeling less like a hot crustacean band and more like poor unfortunate souls. Never did they imagine they would be creating the film that would roll in the Disney renaissance. So as the 1980s unfolded, Disney was sorely in need of a hit animated film. A number of changes had occurred in the highest levels of the company. A hostile takeover was only narrowly averted, Disney stock had plummeted, and perhaps the most discouraging point of all, Disney desperately needed a life jacket for an animation studio that was frantically treading water. The team of animators was in a state of unrest as the younger artists, eager to generate new ideas, were at odds with the veteran staff clinging to long-held traditions. A line of films was released whose critical and financial successes did not quite measure up with the animated features of the previous decades, uh, the lowest point being The Black Cauldron in 1985, which cost $44 million to make and grossed less than half of that amount. So, discouraged with the direction in which Disney animation seemed to be going, many of the older animators retired, and the younger staff left for other jobs. And there was this deep concern that their successors would not live up to the standards long held by the company. 
And Disney was investing more of its time and resources into opening new parks, such as Epcot in 1982 and Tokyo Disneyland in 1983, as well as the expansion of the Walt Disney World Resorts, the development of Touchstone Pictures in 1984, which would produce movies geared for adult audiences, helped to feed rumors that the animation division of the company might be dropped entirely. Also adding to the, the, the uh, unease there, the entire animation staff was moved from its longtime home on the Walt Disney Studios lot to a warehouse uh, in nearby Glendale in order to accommodate the Touchstone Pictures' needs. And as new personnel stepped into the highest offices at Disney, the animators feared for their professional futures and the future of Disney animation. In, instead of eliminating the animation division, however, the new leadership team of Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Board, Michael Eisner, President and Chief Operating Officer Frank Wells, and Vice President Roy E. Disney worked with Jeffrey Katzenberg, Chairman of the Walt Disney Studios, to bring Disney animation back to its former glory. The animation team hoped to create a film that could stand with the classics such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, Pinocchio, and Cinderella, so they returned to the medium that had served Disney so well in the past, the musical fairy tale. So while looking for inspiration for a new animated feature, uh, writer Ron Clements stumbled upon The Little Mermaid in a book of fairy tales by Hans Christian Andersen, and he was immediately drawn to the cinematic potential of the story. Like uh, many older stories, though, including Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, the ending of the original tale was very dark, with the mermaid dying on the morning of her wedding. Hmm. So Clements reworked the story with a happy conclusion and pinched, pitched the idea at the next staff meeting, where, uh, incredibly, it was turned down. The success of Touchstone's first film, Splash, starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah, had prompted the studio to begin work on a sequel, and it was feared that The Little Mermaid was just too similar to the live-action mermaid film. Katzenberg, however, was impressed with uh, Clement's treatment of the story, and the next day called him into his office to discuss moving forward the project anyway. And though Katzenberg originally thought of looking outside of Disney for a screenwriter, Clements convinced him that he and his frequent writing partner, John Musker, were both up to the task, and the two became co-writers and co-directors of the film. So they had, they had a story writers, and they had animators, and now they needed a strong musical score. Music producer David Geffen had brought the name Howard Ashman to Katzenberg's attention. Ashman had written the book and lyrics to the successful off-Broadway musical, The Little Shop of Horrors, which Geffen had co-produced. Ashman was highly regarded for his theater work, and Geffen was certain that he could be a valuable asset for future Disney projects. Meanwhile, in New York City, Ashman's newest musical had opened on Broadway. Uh, it was written with composer uh, Marvin Hamlish, and the show was called Smile, and actually starred a young actress named Ju Jody Benson, who was making her Broadway de debut. And the show's run uh, lasted fewer than two months, but in a prophetic uh, coincidence for Ashman and Benson, the most popular song in the show was actually called Disneyland, and it was sung by Benson's character. Ashman enthusiastically embraced the opportunity to help create an animated musical for Disney and brought along his composer for Little Shop, Alan Menken, to, to write the score. And with their experience primarily in theater, they approached the score as they would a stage musical, an expository song to set up the story, Fathoms Below, a wistful melody for the heroine to sing as she imagined what could be and, and which would win the heart of the audience, you know, part of your world, songs for the antagonist that would balance the character's darkness with comedy like Poor, Unfunch Poor Unfortunate Souls and Les Poissons, a romantic ballad, 
Kiss the Girl, and a production number with upbeat rhythms, catchy melodies, and a large number of characters that would fill the stage or screen with color. And of course, Under the Sea. So when recording the songs, a new technique was utilized in which the actor sang accompanied only by a synthesizer, which was later edited out and replaced with an orchestra. And while this system seemed more efficient at first, it actually proved to be rather, rather challenging, as it was difficult for the orchestra to accurately time individual musical moments within the songs that accompanied the actions occurring in the animation. But less troublesome, however, was the interpretation of the songs by the performers. The songwriters created a demo recording with Ashman singing to Mencken's piano accompaniment. Ashman's expressiveness and nuances were so well done that many of the actors, including Jody Benson, who played Ariel, Samuel E. Wright, who played Sebastian, and Pat Carroll, who played Ursula, simply mimicked his performances from the demo recording. The animation itself was quite traditional, using the Xerox process that had been utilized for every Disney animated film since 101 Dalmatians in 1961. Instead of hand-drawing each animation cell, pictures were photocopied onto cells and then painted by hand. The animators insisted, however, that in order to achieve the look of the older classic films, the bubbles, which numbered around a million, should be hand-drawn, which was actually completed by an animation company in China. Now, due to political tensions in China at the time, there was concern that the cells would not be completed and returned for the scheduled opening of the film, but thankfully Disney did indeed receive the work in time. And much has been made of Ariel's iconic red hair, and the reason for it is that it came down to a marketing decision. To further distance itself from Splash, Ariel was given red hair to stay away from Daryl Hannah's blonde. Also, red is complementary to green, and Ariel's tail color, you know, making a sharp contrast. There was also a new technique utilized for the wedding scene, Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS. With this process, cells were colored digitally instead of being painted by hand, and this process used, uh, would be used exclusively in Disney's next animated feature, The Rescuers Down Under, in 1990. After four years of work, all the pieces were in place, and preliminary screenings generated extremely positive responses, both uh, from children and adults. The marketing department, therefore, opted to promote The Little Mermaid as a film for the entire family, an animated movie for children, but with a story and music that adults would enjoy as well. Still, when the film opened in November 1989, the Disney team braced uh, braced themselves for some bad news. They feared that while their last film, Oliver and Company, had been more successful than most uh, its most recent predecessors, it had been thought of as a movie that both boys and girls could enjoy. They were aware that a film titled The Little Mermaid would most certainly attract girls, but might potentially scare off uh, little boys who would avoid a girls' movie. However, The Little Mermaid brought in over uh, 80, $84 million, and that was uh, over $111 million worldwide, and was heralded by critics as Disney's greatest animated success in 30 years. Two songs from the film were nominated for Golden Globe and Academy Awards for Best Original Song. They were Kiss the Girl and Under the Sea. It was also nominated for Best Original Score. Both Under the Sea and the score would give Mencken and Ashman their first two Academy Awards, as well as earning Golden Globe wins. The Little Mermaid was also the first animated feature to be nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. Presenting the sharply written script and award-winning music was a stellar cast of actors, many of whom were experiencing their first Disney voice work with The uh, the Little Mermaid. And there was a mix of seasoned uh, veteran stage and television actors who worked with the relative newcomers to uh, create the magic that would usher in Disney's second golden age. 
There was uh, Jody Benson as Ariel, Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian, who was not actually Jamaican, but from South Carolina. Uh, Kenneth Mars was King Triton, Pat Carroll as Ursula, Patty Edwards as both Flotsam and Jetsam, Jason Marin as Flounder, and Buddy Hackett as Scuttle. Christopher Daniel Barnes, who played Eric, was only 16 when filming started. Now, most of this cast actually returned when they made the direct-to-video sequel in 2000, uh, The Little Mermaid Return to the Sea. And then some of them even came back a third time in 2008 for the prequel, Ariel's Beginning. But really, The Little Mermaid is like one of the most classic yes. Disney. I think it's actually the first Disney film I remember seeing in the movie theater. Yeah, I actually. didn't see that one in the movie theater, but I, I was babysitting my niece, who's now out of college and would kill me. But she watched the video. It was the first time I'd seen it. And she sang all of it and loved all of it. And I was like, this was incredible. Wow. Loved it. And from then, I haven't missed many of them in the theaters. But yes, you know, people, it's still one of my favorite films. It's amazing. Of all time. I love it. Um, what are your thoughts on The Little Mermaid? Or do you have any I stories? I just told you. Not you, Jeff. I'm th- oh. speaking to all the cadets out there. Sorry. Anyway, tell us what you think. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So this week's book is The Art of Disney's Dragons. And, you know, sometimes a book comes out that is so good that there's nothing else to say but go out and buy it. But we have to fill up more time. Obviously. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So, as I mentioned, this week we're discussing the art of Disney dragons, and it really is unexpectedly amazing. Uh, the The book is presented sort of like a sketchbook from Disney, and it even has one of those cool little cloth bookmarks or string bookmarks um, that you find like in moleskin notebooks. <laughs> I can't think of what it's called. It's got some. Does like I don't a, know if it has a name. It's like a fabric. If it has a name. You let fabric, us know. But I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but. The book really came out of nowhere, and it kind of caught us both by surprise. Like, George got it and was like, hey, what what is this? Um, And this is one of those, like, less reading, more looking at books uh, that has really a lot of great concept art and early artwork in it for, like, literally every dragon you can think of that Disney has had a hand in. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Imagine seeing concept artwork for all the animated dragons throughout the years. But wait! There's more. What? Um, what? Yeah. There is concept artwork for Figment from Journey into Imagination, some of that, as well as some concept artwork from some unbuilt half-day attractions at Disney's Animal Kingdom, you know, like the, the Beastly Kingdom, something that's, like that. That's a low blow, George. <laughs> okay? It doesn't make the park inadequate. Yeah, okay, that's um, true. That's true. But, you know, that said, seeing some of the concept art for it is pretty amazing actually and it you know it kind of blew us away in seeing it it just looked really really cool but even on top of that there's artwork for movies and television shows as well yeah and as, as jeff mentioned the, the book was a total surprise it just showed up but it there's a reason that it's being released of course this summer and the reason is pete's dragon because there's a sign that says featuring Elliot from Pete's Dragon 2016. Um, so the book is obviously a tie into the film, but it is really so much more than that. Uh, it's a look at how dragons, you know, their designs changed over the years at Disney, whether it was animation, live action, or even in a theme park. 
Um, so basically, I ignored all the new Peach Dragon stuff. <gasps> what? Because um, I'm a purist, oh, and okay. it was at the end of the book anyway, so it was easy to ignore. Mm. But I concentrated on everything else, including the original Peach Dragon sketches. Um, and there was also stuff for the Reluctant Dragon yep. uh, from Sleeping Beauty, and even in the dragon that was on the Tower of the Four Winds at the New York World's Fair, complete with some rolly notes attached yeah. to it, too. Are you going to take that to him and ask him if he can authorize? I mean, is this, are these really his notes? Oh, I already asked him. I sent him a picture. Oh, okay. Okay, good. He confirmed. Good, good. Yes, he confirmed. We have confirmation. Crump confirmed. Crump, crump firmed? Crump, crump, yeah. Yeah. 100% crump firmed? Wow, okay. So, (laughs) anyway, we had another Joker put in there, but that one was so much better. That was way better. (laughs) Still, this book by itself, regardless of our jokes, is incredible. And there is something in it for everyone, whether you're an animation fan, a theme park fan, or just a dragon fan, because really, who doesn't like dragons? Everyone loves dragons. We all love dragons. Uh, I mean, there's brief introductions from the director of the new Peach Dragon film and an animator, but and there's actually a little bit of substance to them, but really, you're buying this book for the dragons and their lore. So I, I think I speak for both of us when I say I would highly recommend it to everyone. Totally. Totally recommend it. So this week's book is The Art of Disney's Dragons. What we liked, what we didn't like, yay's in the booze! 60 Second Review! So, I recently had the opportunity to see the new Cirque Imagine show at Carowinds. And for those of you who aren't familiar, that is a theme park that sits outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, in between two states, North and South Carolina. So... Cirque Imagine sort of debuted at Carowinds after months of teasing from Carowinds. And I do know that this the show has also premiered at other Cedar Fair parks. But, you know, there was a blackout at one and it rained at another. So <laughs> that's, that's another story. But anyways, so I, I've never seen any Cirque performance live. Seen stuff on television. I've never been able to see Cirque du Soleil at Disney. Really wanted to, but I was too busy doing other things. And my wife has been waiting for this show since she first heard about it. And even my 12-year-old walked away. You know, the superhero fan, he walked away very excited about it. He liked wow. it. Yeah, he liked it. So so Cirque Imagine takes place in the Carowinds Theater, which is in the Carolina Showplace section. And it seats about 675 people. And right now they're doing three shows at 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and 7 o'clock every day except Tuesday. Because these amazing performers really need a break at least I'm once. I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, doors open about 15 minutes before the show time, and there's no outside queue, but once you get in, the, the theater is dark, lots of air conditioning, lots of seats, and you're not supposed to bring food or drink, but if you have one of those refillable mugs, I don't think they'll stop you. So you do that. So anyway, the Cirque Imagine show itself is about 30 minutes, which is a really great length for the, sh- for the theme park itself, and they had about seven or eight different smaller vignettes, and it had the usual acrobatic clowns, there was a uh, bicyclist who did some incredible stunts, and there was a silk aerialist. You know, those uh, ladies that has the long silk moleskin notebook holder? No, something different. <laughs> and, you know, she basically in, in, entwines herself in uh, wraps and unwraps herself and does some amazing uh, acrobatic stunts and things like that. Um, one of the clowns even used what's called a sir wheel. C-Y-R. And it was amazing. It was like a gigantic metal hula hoop that he put himself in like the Vitruvian Man from Da Vinci Code. Or the, from Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. <laughs> what are you Leonardo talking about? Da Vinci. <laughs> but he basically did a lot of acts with that. There was humor. 
there was sadness in it there was a little bit of scary parts to it um but the whole show was exciting it was breathtaking it was wonderful the music was great uh, everybody enjoyed it got a standing ovation which was wonderful nice uh, just a standing ovation i think there's a cast of eight in the group itself and you can tell these people know what they're doing. Incredible physicality. Oh, and, and I asked my 12-year-old, I said, what was your favorite part? And close to the end, they do their famous trampoline acts that the Cirque shows are famous for, where they jump down and run back up the side of the stage and do all these great flips. It was wonderful. Made me realize how out of shape I was and <laughs> how much I would kill myself if I had to do any of that. I think that's every Cirque show ever. Exactly. But, you know, it's sort of like Cirque Light, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It was a little taste of Cirque, what they do across the world and other places. But it's a wonderful, wonderful addition. It's a great 30 minutes to add to your day at any of the Cedar Fair parks. And to me, it was comparable to stuff you may see at any of the Orlando-based theme parks as mm. far as live shows. And it's included in your Carowinds admission. I mean, it's sort of... My wife said, you know, Cirque Imagine is a big ticket spectacular without the big ticket price tag. Because it's free as well. Once you get into the park, it's free. Yeah. But you don't have to pay any extra. So, hey, if you're near any of the other Cedar Parks, definitely check it out. I was very impressed and I liked it. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> Honey, I spotted a five-legged goat. I mean, what? George. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. Nothing I promise here. I would never call you that again. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know if you guys remember the film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but it was a hit in 1989, and in it, Wayne Selinski, the crackpot inventor, he came up with all sorts of crazy inventions, including one which shrunk his kids down to ant size in the backyard. Um, however, another one of his inventions could be found during a Journey into Imagination with Figment at Epcot. When you're in the vision room, you know, the one that has all the visual optical illusions, and you look at that screen with, like, the eye chart and everything on it, uh, there's a table in that room full of random things. And on the table is the helmet phone that Wayne uh, walks around with at the start of the film. And if you use your imagination, you can also use the helmet phone to call Dreamfinder to come back and clean up the mess that is the Imagination Pavilion right now. Mm, speaking of something that isn't a mess, and our own personal... Dreamfinder, Teresa at Fairy Godmother Travel. You're beautiful segue. Oh, I try. Beautiful I try. segue. Thank you, thank you. She well is sponsoring this week's Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets Prize Winner. We really should have come up with a smaller title for this thing. Yeah, we should, but I like it. I know, it's funny, you know, since we've been celebrating it for almost two years now. Mm -hmm. um, in case you weren't aware, you can enter this weekly prize drawing. We still have a couple of months left, a couple of shows just by emailing communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can add you to the list. Yay, we're excited. So as I mentioned, this week's prize is from Fairy Godmother Travel, and the winner is Dan S. from San Diego, no, San Diego? San Diego. San Diego, California. Hooray. So congratulations, Dan, yay. And um, you know, when you get your prize, Take a photo, send it to us, put it on the Facebooks, the Twitters, hit us up on some works. We'd love to see you enjoying the prize. Yeah, or give it to your kids, Dan. Yeah, exactly. He's got kids? Yeah, he does have kids. Dan's got kids? Okay. I know that because I I actually met them not too long ago. Oh. So when his name counted, I'm like, hey, hey Dan. I know Dan. Okay. And he didn't give you any money, right? 
No. Okay, good, good, good. I just want to make sure we're on the level. Oh, no, 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 no. He didn't win the prize because of that. He randomly came up. I think maybe he ran the, won the prize because he got you like a cupcake. Um, uh, no. No? Okay, good. We'll move end, end on. End the show. End the show. End the show. End the show now. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yeah, however you get the show, whether you're watching on YouTube, leave us a comment, or if you do it on iTunes, you know, leave us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. And email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com, whether you just want to say what's up, Corey, or just ask us how we're feeling. Yeah, yeah, we that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagineerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can always give us a call on the Communico Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And visit our Communa store and get shirts on our website at communicorweekly.com. we got awesome t-shirts. Love them. And there's still time to get your official cadet membership card and stickers. Send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communico Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash Communicore Weekly. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.